You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at hcbc.com. Please enjoy today's message. Morning. I want to welcome you all to Hill Country Bible Church, and I'm real curious to get your opinion on something. So when, when people are asked the question, what is your number one emotion? Like, what do you think people say? Just shout it out, okay? Just shout it out. I need to hear it. Okay, fear. Sadness, anger, I'm getting a few from the front row. rest of you aren't helping me much. I guess you guys know that like, I need some help. The number one in the surveys, love. So then I'm wondering, what would be the number two? So what do you think the number two is? Okay, we got anger, we got fear, Anxiety. You guys are a depressed group of people, mad, <laughs> depressed, angry. Joy. <laughs> so the number two is regret. Regret. Love and regret are two universal feelings that we all have. Daniel Pink, writing in the Wall Street Journal, has read over 16,000 stories, people's personal stories of regret in 105 different countries, and he defines regret this way. Regret feels awful. It is the stomach-churning sensation that the present would be better and the future brighter if only you hadn't chosen so poorly, decided so wrongly, or acted so stupidly in the past. Regret hurts. Now, my guess is that if, if you were to sit here for just a few minutes and kind of think back over your life, it wouldn't take you long to think, boy, I wish I could go back and redo that one because that is something that I live with every day of my life. Do you know what that is for you? Maybe it's more than one thing. But the challenge with the past is you can't go back and erase what happened. And so oftentimes we feel stuck because we can't go back and fix something that happened in the past. And so how do we deal with the past? Well, the good thing is that there is good news today because God has a remedy for how to deal with the regret in our lives. And, and we're in a series of sermons this summer called Summer in the Psalms, where we decide this summer we're not going to take a vacation from God, we're going to take our vacation with God. And we've been looking at the Psalms. For 3,000 years, the Psalms have been the songbook of the heart of the worshiper. And each of the Psalms portrays the emotions, gives words to the struggle, helps us connect with God in fresh ways. So each week we've looked at a Psalm. In fact, last week we looked at Psalm 42. Now in Psalm 42, it helps us to understand what do we do when we feel depressed. And with each Psalm, we've actually given you an exercise to do during the week. And so last week we challenged everybody to basically go to your phone 
and load up a reminder of Psalm 42.5 that you would be praying at a specific time every day. Like your phone goes off, oh, Psalm 42.5, which says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So I set this to go off at noon every day. So it goes off at noon on Monday, and, and I'm praying this prayer to God. And on Tuesday, well, Tuesday, I went in for a routine procedure, and the doctor in the routine procedure found something that he didn't like, which means it's going to the path lab, right? Isn't that what they do? But I'm reading this passage. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. And you know what I realized? Like, no matter what the results of that test is, my hope is not in a diagnosis or a doctor, My hope is not in many years or few years. My hope is in God. And I was encouraged. Now, I did get the test results back, and it came back negative. So I'm positive about it, right? (laughs) But, yeah, that's good news. But when I was doing this every day, this, this little practice... Which just meant the world to me. It was such a great thing. And so that's what we're encouraging you to do. Listen to the psalm as we teach it on Sunday, and then do the little exercise, because that's why you take it home with you, and you benefit beyond simply in the moment. So today, we are in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 51 if you've got a Bible. Uh, If you don't, you can download the Bible app you can actually select Hill Country Bible Church as your church. And if you go to the events tab and click on it, this passage will come up on your phone along with the outline and and, uh, some questions and so forth. So I encourage you to do that every week. If you go to the Bible app, you click on the events, you're going to get Hill Country Bible Church once you put that in as your church. And so I encourage you guys to do that. So in the psalm, the psalm starts with, for the director of music, so the psalm is written, given to the director of music to be sung in the temple, for the director of music, a psalm of David, so David wrote this, in fact, this is the first of 15 consecutive psalms in the psalms that are psalms of David. But here's the occasion, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Whoa. So what do you do after that? For those of you who may not know the backstory, let me quickly give you the backstory. So David becomes the king of the nation of Israel, actually the greatest king of the nation of Israel. And David is following God through his whole ministry, his whole life, his whole kingship. He's doing what God tells him to do. He's been very successful, builds his palace in Jerusalem, wants to build the temple in Jerusalem. He's actually moving forward. And he gets to a little bit later in his life, he sends his military out to fight battles against his enemy. He's at home, and while he's at home, he looks down from the highest point in the city, which is the top of his palace, and when he looks down into the courtyards of all the people below, he sees a woman who's bathing, and she's beautiful. So he inquires, who is she? And they tell him, she's the wife of Uriah, one of your most trusted, like, SEAL Team 6 type warriors, one of the 30 mighty men 
of which David knows immediately who Uriah is because he's fought side by side with him in all of his battles. David decides to send her an invitation. She comes to the palace. David sleeps with her, sends her home. That's that, except when she lets him know that she's pregnant and there's no way it could be her husband because he's been away fighting. And so David immediately tries to cover that up. So he basically invites Uriah to come back from battle so that he can talk to him. Uriah comes back, leaves the men on the field fighting, comes back. David says, hey, you need to go home and be with your wife. Uriah says, there's no way I'm going to go home while the troops are in the field. My comrades are fighting. I'm not going to leave them and go home and enjoy myself. So he sleeps at the gate or the door of David's palace David realizes that's not going to work, so when he sends Uriah back, he sends him with a note to the commander to put Uriah in harm's way, which he does, and Uriah gets killed in battle. Bathsheba grieves. David does the noble thing. Nobody knows. He takes the grieving widow to be his wife. They have a child, but God is not pleased. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to confront him. I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. It's an incredible story of how somebody who had done pretty well with his life just completely wipes out And that's the story behind this psalm. So after David is confronted, David begins a process of dealing with his regret, dealing with his sin, and that's what he talks about in Psalm 51. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And the first thing that David says is that when we have regrets, when we've blown it, when we've messed up, and all of us have, he tells us to do this. He says, make our appeal to a merciful God. Like, cry out to a merciful God. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sins. So in this poetic fashion, David recounts three different words for his sin. He calls them transgressions, which means to rebel against God's good plan. He calls them iniquities, which means to take something that's good and to twist it into evil. He calls them sin, which means to miss the mark, to fall short of what God said is good. Now think about it. David breaks five commandments of the ten. He breaks five of them. The first thing he does is he covets his neighbor's wife. Then he steals her. Then he commits adultery with her. Then he lies to cover it up. And finally, he commits murder. He kills her husband. David says, I am guilty. But David is also appealing to God and saying to God, listen, God, what I want you to do is blot out my sin, erase them. I want you to wash me, to clean up my soiled soul. I want you... to to cleanse me, to make me pure again so that I can be ceremonially clean and religiously and spiritually clean. And you might ask the question, like, David, after you've done this, how in the world could you ask God to forgive you? I want you to notice in the passage 
that it all comes down to David knowing who God is. He says, have mercy on me, O God. David knows God is a merciful God. The word mercy, same word we translate grace, means unmerited favor. In other words, David knows that sometimes God does for something, someone something that they don't deserve. He says, according to your unfailing love. That's that word chesed that we've been talking about. It's the Hebrew word which means that God's kind of love is covenantal. He makes a commitment to people and he keeps his commitment. Even though David doesn't keep his commitments, even though you and I don't keep our commitments, God always keeps his commitments. And finally, he appeals to him on the basis of his compassion. Now, some of you may not know this, but God feels God is not a dispassionate rule giver that simply hurls lightning bolts at those people who transgress. God actually is an emotional being. And the word compassion means the ability to feel what you feel. God has that ability. The reason why David can ask God for forgiveness is because of who God is. Now, I know many of us maybe from your background or from your experience or you know, from teaching somewhere along the way, uh, you got the idea that God is a God who's so perfect that he can't be messed with or he can't come into the presence of evil. He can't have anything dirty touch him because God's just like, he puts that out of his presence. And so you think to yourself, well, if that's the case, how can I ever bring myself to God? Because I've failed how can I bring myself to God? Uh, Bobby Moore was the, the, the captain of the soccer team for England when they won the World Cup in 1966. And um, the, the winner of the World Cup that year was going to get a chance to go receive it from Queen Elizabeth. And she was there. And, and one of the reporters asked Bobby, like, what were you thinking when you were on your way to see Queen Elizabeth? And he said, the only thing I could think of is she's wearing white gloves. She's the queen. And my hands are all dirty from the pitch. And I've got to go up and shake her hand and receive this trophy. So in the video, you can actually see him. He, he's wiping his hands on his pants as he's walking up there. When he gets up there to the dais where she's standing, he starts trying to wipe his hands on the velvet that surrounds it. And then finally, like, he has to reach up and he has to take his dirty hand and shake her hand and receive the World Cup. And a lot of us think of God that way. He's perfect. So how can I come to him with dirty hands, with a dirty heart, with a dirty mind, with a dirty soul. Here's the difference. When you shake the white glove of Queen Elizabeth, whatever dirt you have on you is going on her glove. But when you shake the hand of God, God cleanses your hand. In other words, God is not soiled by our sin. God actually has the ability to remove it. And that's why David is saying, merciful God, I'm coming in your presence and I'm asking you to heal me, to forgive me, to wipe it clean. My question is, like how long? How long will you carry it? How long will you linger? Like how long before you bring 
your failures, your sins, your regrets to God and just lay it out there in front of him. Will you keep this forever? The next thing that David does and tells us to do is to own our guilt and our need for transformation. To own our guilt and our need for transformation. Look how David owns his guilt. He says in verse 3, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Excuse me. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, it's been a year and he's saying, I know what I've done and that's all I can think about. It's always before me. So a year goes by, the baby's born. Every time he sees Bathsheba, every time he sees the baby, every time he thinks about it, he can't get this out of his mind. In fact, David is so overcome with regret and with guilt that he writes Psalm 32 during this time, and listen to what he says. He says, blessed or happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Why? Because David says, that's not me. I am guilty. I am faking. I am pretending. I'm trying to keep this thing under wraps. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, like going outside on a normal Texas summer day. David says, like, I feel that all the time. When David was simply pretending, putting it off, not dealing with it, he was racked with guilt. So David owns this, and he decides he's going to come forward and bring this to God. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is owning his sin, but it's so interesting what he says. Because most of us would think, well, what do you mean you sinned against God? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Absolutely he did. Didn't you sin against Uriah? Absolutely he did. What is this all about? Sin is against you and you only have I sinned. What David is doing is he's actually owning his sin before God. Now, when David is confronted by Nathan the prophet, Nathan the prophet tells him what God has to say about his sin. And I want you to listen to this. This comes right out of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. This is the confrontation. Watch what God says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. What's God saying? God's saying, David, your success is because of me. Now, oftentimes we forget that. We think to ourselves, well, I'm the one who brought myself into this world. I'm the one who earned the successes that I have. I'm the one who's done all these things. This is all about me. And what God is reminding David and what God is reminding us is if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would not be alive. 
You would not have the gifts you have. You would not have the opportunity you have. You would not have the relationships that you have. And God says to him, if what I've given you is not enough, ask me for more. Instead, rather than asking, David takes what's not his. And God goes on and he says this. He says, why would you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. God said, you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And in verse 14, he said, in doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. David, what you have done is you've taken this incredible, precious life that you've been given, and you used it to take advantage of other people. And that's personal with me, because I didn't make you for that reason. I didn't bless you for that reason. And David recognizes that he has sinned against God. Now, here's why this is so important for us to recognize. First of all, if you think your sin is only against other people, good luck at trying to get absolution from them. Right? Because you spend your whole life trying to run around and fix it with other people, and, and as gracious as people might be to you, they don't have the ability to remove the stain from your soul. Only God can do that. So if you don't do business with God about the things from your past, you will never truly experience full forgiveness. The second thing is if we only look at our sin, our brokenness, what we've done, our regrets, in light of who it hurt, it's too easy for us to do what we often do, deny, minimize, and blame. Well, I know I did that, and I know I shouldn't have done it, and I regret it, but really, it's because you should have grown up in the house I grew up in with the people I grew up in with. Like, I, you know, I'm, it's lucky I'm not worse than I am. And what are we doing? We're minimizing. Or, yeah, that was wrong, but you should have seen what they did to me. We're blaming other people. And there are many things that we deep in our hearts regret, but we have constantly convinced ourselves that it's not my fault, I, you know, like it's everybody else except for me. But when we look face to face with God, not only can we receive full forgiveness, but we also we also can own the whole thing, and David owns the whole thing. In fact, watch how much he owns it. Look at the next two verses in verse 5 and 6. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Now, that, that couplet there, starting with the word surely, is a contrast between David and God. Now the word surely there is literally the word for look or behold or this is obvious. And so David starts with, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
David is admitting, like my bent from the time I was born, actually even going back to the time I was conceived, has been to do evil, to to be selfish, to be prideful, to want my own regardless of what anybody else wants. In other words, it wasn't just David started to have those thoughts, feelings when he was standing on the balcony looking down. This has been going on his whole life. And we know that that's true, right? Because we know our own hearts if we're willing to admit it. You know, there, just last night we were doing, um, doing grand, grandparent duty. So I got my three-year-old Caroline over at the house and her 16-month-old brother, Warren, and Cindy steps out of the room, so it's obviously chaos when it's just grandpa in the room, right? And so anyway, um, Caroline is sitting in a little chair that we've got, a little kitty chair on the floor, the three-year-old. She's sitting in the chair. She gets bored. She gets up, walks away to go get something else to play with. And Warren, the 16-month-old, toddles over there and starts to get in the chair. And as soon as Caroline catches him doing that out of the corner of her eye, she runs over there, jumps in the chair, knocks him out. He starts crying. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, what in the world did my daughter and son-in-law do to ruin this child? (laughs) Because obviously, she came out of the womb completely selfless and willing to give and share and just not be be self-focused at all, right? Or maybe it's you, society. Who, which of you got a hold of my grandkids and ruined them? Interesting, some of the ideas in our world today, we we have these ideas like, well, kids are basically born good at society that ruins them. So I start a conversation with Caroline. I say, Caroline, you were bored with that chair. She smiles, twinkling her eye. I said, "You you came over and got in that chair just because Warren wanted to get in it, didn't you? And she goes. And I said, See, Warren is crying. Don't you want to get out of that chair to let him have a turn? And she goes. (laughs) At age three, she knew exactly what she was doing. And David said, that's the condition of my heart. I have congenital depravity from my birth, even from my conception. Now, let me just give you an aside here. We are in the middle of a national debate on when human life begins. And there are many people who are saying that the Bible teaches that human life begins at live birth. I just want you to look at verse 5 again. Because David says, I was culpable at conception. The Bible clearly teaches that at conception, a human life, a human soul, in God's eyes, is real. And that's when life begins according to the Bible. Okay? So I just, I just want to point that out 
Because you'll hear a lot of things from a lot of different people, but if you're actually wanting to look at what the Bible says, you can look right there at verse 5. It makes it clear. Now, David is saying, I had a problem from the time I was conceived. That selfishness, that bent to go do wrong. He says, in contrast to that, look, here's what God says. He says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. In other words, what you shaped me for, created me for, was that in my innermost being, the center of myself, that I would live by the truth, not by my own selfishness. That I would follow your ways. In fact, he goes on to say, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. In other words, you give me a conscience. I have a sense of right and wrong. The reason why you feel regret is because you you know inside of yourself that decisions you've made and things you've done, those are not right. I know that, you know that. So David says, here's who I am, but God, here's what you made me to be. Here's what the human race ought to be. Anytime somebody says, why does God let the human race go this way? That was not God's design. That's our culpability. And then David goes on to ask for forgiveness from his guilt. In verse 7, he says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. What's David talking about? He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. He's talking about the sacrifice. When a person sinned, they would bring a sacrifice to the temple. The animal would be slaughtered, a life for a life. And the blood, the priest would dip hyssop branches and sprinkle the blood on the worshiper to say, a life has been taken to spare your life or to provide you with forgiveness. And so David is saying, like, Father, God, you cleanse me with hyssop so that I may be clean. He says, you wash me that I might be whiter than snow. Now, how many people do we have here who lived in snow country, grew up in snow country? Anybody? Bunch of you guys? Okay, so my question is directly for you. How do you wash yellow snow (laughs) clean? Pretty hard, right? Nigh impossible. What's David saying? He says, wash me and I will be put back to the perfection of your cleansing. This is a supernatural work. David is not asking that he offer some kind of penance and that God receive that. What David is saying is, I have nothing to bring here. I'm just coming before you, and as I just come before you, I'm asking you to completely remove the soil from my soul so that I can be completely clean. And then he says, I want to hear... Joy and gladness? Well, joy and gladness is what the priest would pronounce over the sinner after he sprinkled them with blood. He would say, your sins have been forgiven. David says, I want to hear that. My sins have been forgiven. And then one more thing he asked for, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. To blot out would be to take the blotter 
and remove the sentence, remove the crime, to erase it from David's record so that it's like when God looks at David, his sin is hidden from God and all he sees is David, clean and white as snow. David is asking that God would wash him and cleanse him. Now what David is talking about here in the Old Testament is exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus as a sacrificial lamb into the world. Jesus was crucified to pay for our sins, and God took the blood of Jesus Christ as an atonement. And for all those who put their trust in Jesus by confessing their brokenness, their sin, and asking Jesus to forgive them and cleanse them, God pronounces you righteous removes the record of your wrong, invites you into his family, and gives you eternal life. That's the gospel, the good news. So if you would say, hey, I ultimately want to be completely forgiven from my past. I want my soul to be cleansed. I want to have a right relationship with God. It begins with inviting Jesus Christ to forgive you, to cleanse you, to come into your life, to start a relationship with him, and to clean you at the core of who you are. David says, that's what I need. And then David says, not only do I need remedy for my guilt, I need to be transformed. Look at what he says next. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. The word create, there's the same word used in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. In other words, start with a new, a brand new heart. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. I want to be completely clean. The supernatural work of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. David says, I need to be transformed. I need a new heart. I need something that works differently in me. He goes on to say, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He's not saying that I would lose the Holy Spirit in the sense of if you're a believer and you sin, you lose your salvation. What he's talking about here is that God in the Old Testament anointed kings and prophets for a special service. When Saul rebelled, God took his spirit from Saul. David is concerned, God, are you going to not work through me anymore? And David says, I still want to be part of this thing. And then he goes on to say, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's hard to fully experience the joy of what Jesus has done for you when you have unconfessed sin in your life. Whenever we're living with regret and we haven't dealt with it, the challenge we face is we lose a little bit of that joy. And David says, I want to be completely forgiven so that I will be transformed and I will have the joy back. I'm just wondering, like, Do you have the joy? Follower of Jesus? Over time, has the joy kind of worn off a little bit? That Jesus loved you enough to find you, to give you eternal life in him, to forgive you of your sins, to bring you into his family? Have you lost some of that? 
Could it be that there are things in your life that you've not dealt with? You've never brought them to Jesus. You haven't gone through the confession part. On my sabbatical last year, I came across an an ancient prayer that um, I just pray regularly. In fact, anytime I have bad headspace, you know, when when you're selfish or you're prideful or you're thinking about things, I, I just repeat this prayer over and over again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I just start saying that and saying that and saying that, and God immediately begins to reshape the way I think and the way I see things. David says, return to me the joy of my salvation. Now, the final thing that David points us to is this. He says, then we're to go live out our gratitude by encouraging others. In other words, it's not simply forgiveness for the sake of me. Once I've received forgiveness, I immediately begin to live out that gratitude by encouraging others. Now, this is so important for two reasons. The first reason why this is so important is because if you don't go from forgiveness to engagement with other people to help them, then Satan wins a double victory. He got you to sin originally, and then he gets you thinking, well, you know, how can I help anybody look at what I've done wrong? So he wins on the first one, and then he sidelines you on the second one, so he basically takes you out of the game. The second reason why this is so important is because whenever we sin, there will be consequences. Many people think that the reason why we ask for forgiveness is so that God will remove the consequences. But let's face it, there's a Uriah, there's a Bathsheba. There are people involved in this that are going to hurt because of David's sin. So there are going to be consequences, even though we are forgiven. And so here's why this is so important. If I don't immediately go out and begin out of my gratitude to serve Jesus and to make a difference in the world, I will sit there, and when the consequences come, I will think, well, I can't be forgiven because look at the consequences. And that's where some of us are right now. We've had some bad things come about because of what we've done, and we keep thinking, well, God may not have forgiven me. What David says is, yes, if you've confessed your sin, God's forgiven you. Now go live as if you're forgiven, regardless of the consequences. And here's what he says. First thing he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. In other words, now that I've been forgiven, I'm going to go out and find other people that don't think they can be forgiven, and I'm going to encourage them that they can be forgiven too. The greatest ambassador is someone that's filled with gratitude for what God did for them and wants other people to experience that gratitude too. Then David goes on to say, I'm going to lead people in authentic worship. He says in verse 14, save me from the blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you don't despise. In other words, God, you're going to open my lips and out of gratitude and joy, I'm going to praise you 
And I'm going to encourage people, don't just go through the rituals of bringing your sacrifice to kind of get your hands clean, but allow yourself to actually go to that place of a broken and contrite heart because that's where God's going to meet you. That's authentic worship. This is David now leading worship with the same kind of joy, gratitude, and exuberance that some of you have when your team scores a goal. You know what I'm talking about? How many of us, when it comes to our relationship with God, it's, yeah. But when our teams are winning, it's, ah, like we're all out there. Isn't that too interesting? What would happen in you if that were reversed? If the playthings that we play with became just fun and our joy and our gratitude was in our expression of worship and helping people grow and helping people move forward in their faith, which is where David ends this psalm. The one more thing he says is that I want to make a difference in people's lives. Look at what he says. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. He's not talking about the physical walls. He's talking about the people. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says, I am going to get involved in making a difference in people's lives. The best way to move past our regret is to get involved in making a difference in people's lives, helping them move forward. When we do that, you don't have time to reflect on the past because you're moving forward into the future. So to help you this week, here's our spiritual practice. For a fresh start with God, set aside an hour sometime this week. So what I'm encouraging you to do is before you leave here, Pull out your smart device, look at your calendar, pick an hour, mark it out. And here's what I want you to do in that hour. To humbly pray through Psalm 51 and bring all of the things from your past where you have regrets, lay it all out before God and ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to remove those things from you. And then rejoice in the freedom of God's forgiveness. Rejoice in the freedom of God's forgiveness. Again, I will ask you, how long will you keep carrying things that you don't have to hang on to anymore? Now, some of you look at that and you say, well, you don't know where I'm at, Tim. You don't know what I've done. And so therefore... How can, I, how can I know for sure that this is good? How can I know? Let, me, let me give one more word for those of you who are not convinced. So Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, quotes Thomas Goodwin, and here's what he says. He says, Christ's own joy, his comfort, happiness, and glory are increased by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. In other words... When you come broken, it makes Jesus happy to be there for you. He goes on in his book to tell the story of a doctor who 
there was a, a group of people living in a part of the world that was very, very behind in technology. They had a disease that was killing them, and this doctor decided he was going to go try to help these folks. And so at his own expense, he loaded his equipment on a plane, flew it in there, landed. He diagnosed the problem. He got the right antibiotics and the right treatment together for them. He was trying to help this group of people, but nobody wanted his help. They wanted to keep doing the old practices. So the doctor was so totally frustrated, he had gone so far to reach them, and yet they didn't want his help. Finally, a couple young men got brave, and they came in, and he treated them, and they got better. Now, what do you think the doctor felt? You know what he felt. He felt joy. The purpose of him coming was to help people that were sick. Jesus' purpose in coming to this world was to help broken sinners, people that have failed, people with regrets. Don't you think he has joy when we come to him and bring our concerns to him? That is exactly what Jesus desires from you. And my prayer is that we would flock to him, we would run to him this week, and we would put those regrets behind us and move forward in our relationship with him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you are a God who loves to forgive. You're a God of mercy, unfailing love. You're a God of compassion. And I thank you that no matter where we've been and what we've done, you are ready to take us back. Father, I pray that all of us this week we come into your presence and we would receive your mercy and we would get the joy back. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To hear other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at hcbc.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.